forever, ever leaves us and, and who has promised that as we surrender to you, he takes more and more. And that's what we want today, Lord. We want you to take more and more of us. We want you to clear out our minds and our hearts and everything about us, Lord, so that there's more space for you, so that there's more of you in us and through us. And Lord, you know, we, I pray that you would make that real today, Lord, that you would help us to see that it's a real promise and that you really will do that. And, and that as we give even an inch to you, you run in like the Father that you are and you, and you just take hold of us. And, and as the scripture says, you rejoice over us with singing. So Lord, I pray that you would be singing and rejoicing today over us, your people, because we have come today to hear from you. We have come to fellowship together around your word and to hear your voice, Lord, for that's the voice we want more than any other. So I pray, Father, that uh, you would take this whole day, use it for your glory, Lord, that we would honour you in everything we say, not, not, not simply in our singing or in our uh, times of uh, listening to the word, but that, but that we would honour you in our coffee break and in our lunch and in our conversations and in our thoughts, the way we think about one another and the way we decide to um, consider everyone else more highly than ourselves. Lord, the way we decide to live by your will and not for our own. So I pray, Lord, so many things in that prayer. I pray it all, Lord, so that you would be glorified, so that Christ Jesus would be exalted in this place. And I thank you because you will fulfill that prayer. You will answer that prayer in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, hello, Francoise. Nice to see you. Um, over the last couple of months, we've been uh, looking at what it means to walk with God. We, we looked at that in September, and then uh, we realized that as we walk with him all the days of our lives, listening to what he says, guided by his spirit, obeying what we hear, we're going to be ready to meet him when he comes. So walking with God in September, be ready in October. Um, walking with God leads into being ready. If you walk with God, you will be ready to see the Lord Jesus face to face. There's no doubt. You won't be surprised. And, he, and you won't be afraid. You'll be able to run to him and not stand shrinking in the corner because of something you think you, weren't, you didn't get right. And today we're going to look at uh, what we do while we do those things. We're walking with God. We're becoming ready because we're listening to what God says. And one of the things that God tells us to do while we're doing that, while we're living with him, is to watch and wait. And today is called watching and waiting. And so we're going to um, figure out today what it is we watch for and how we wait. Hello, Sandra. How we wait. Because waiting is really difficult, don't you think? It's like really difficult. And... Um, and I think that probably because we have a slight misunderstanding of what the word wait means, what God means when he says wait. So um, the answers to how we watch and wait are found, of course, in the scriptures. And so um, we're going to today look at two letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. Um, he wrote them pretty soon after he left them, actually. And they're possibly the first letters he wrote. Um, there's some disagreement about that, but it doesn't really matter. They're, they're, they're two of his earliest letters. And um, he, he wrote to them just a couple of years after he'd actually founded the church. If you read Acts chapter 17, verse 1 and 2, um, you will see that he went there on his second missionary journey 
And, uh, well, let's, let's read it. Acts chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. Now, when they had traveled through Amph- Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Um, And basically what what happened with that is that Paul and some others left Thessalonica and went on. So actually he was there only three weeks. I mean, that's quite amazing when you read his letters to them because what he taught them in those three weeks was the whole of Christianity. He taught them the whole of the doctrine of God in those three weeks. And actually, it's amazing to me, really, because we have this idea that when people come to know the Lord Jesus, when they first become believers, we better not dump everything on them straight away. We have to bring them in slowly and gradually. But the Thessalonians obviously, are the opposite to that. Paul didn't think, I better not tell them about the day of the Lord. I better not tell them about the tribulation. I better not tell them about the rapture because they're not really ready for any of that. He just told them it all. He told them it all because he knew that if you don't know the plan of God, it is extremely difficult to walk with him and be ready for when he comes. And so that's really, that's kind of been the, the reason for these last three conferences because We are to know the plan of God and to be ready for when he comes. But also, we are to be watching and waiting so that we can know what to do before he comes. And, um, yeah, so uh, when he writes to the Thessalonians, um, he uh, writes to them, the first letter is full of references to the future. If you go to 1 Thessalonians, um, it's with the T's before Hebrews. 1 Thessalonians, and uh, he's talking about the future. He's talking to them about what is going to come for them, about the, the glories that await them. And, um, and he wants to tell them about this return of Jesus to take them home, to take them home. Because what happens, what has happened to these Thessalonians when they became Christians, they understood that where they lived was not their home. So, I mean, that's the challenge for us. Where do you live? I mean, do you live in Stroud or Sirencester or wherever, you know, Malmesbury or wherever you live, Gloucester? Because that's not where you belong. That's not your home. And if you find that where you live, people don't understand you, you should be saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord. They don't understand you because you speak a different language. It's almost like you look different. And that's because you have the risen Jesus Christ living within you by his spirit. How could you possibly look and speak and behave the same as someone who didn't? So for us as believers in 2019, living in the UK, we have to understand that. Don't expect the world to understand you. They won't. Don't expect people to automatically like what you say. They won't. 
Don't expect them to live as you live, think as you think, because they won't. And so the, the key is making sure that we think the right way and live the right way so that they can see the difference. Our role in all of this is not so that we live the same so that they like us and that they can you know, accept us. Our role in all of this is so that we live differently so that they, at some point in their life, think, I need help, who can help me? And your name and your face rises up in their mind. I think sometimes as Christians we get it all the wrong way around. We want to make everybody like us. We want to say the right thing and, and look the same and make church comfortable and, and bring people in and, and let them feel that they're at home. They're not at home. If an unbeliever walked in here today, he or she should feel uncomfortable. Not because you want them to feel uncomfortable, but so that they know, wait a minute, th these people, th they're, not, they're not like me. And then by the end of the day, they're supposed to be thinking, oh, but I want to be like them. How can I be like them? My daughter started working um, part-time for a high school in, um, in London. She's a teacher, and she's teaching history and religious studies or whatever they call you know, RE, whatever it used to be. And uh, one of the girls in, in the class said to her, there's something, a, my daughter's a Christian, and she said to her, there's something about you that's different. There's, there's an energy in you that is, is, is different. And it's intriguing, this class. They're seniors, you know, they're, they're going up to take their... Uh, final exams, and, and, and what they see in her, it's not that she talks about Jesus all the time, she doesn't, but she, they see something in her that is different, and there it's starting to intrigue them. Well, now look at your life and the people you mix with. Do they see something different in you, so much so that it causes them to think, what is that? What is that? Because the Thessalonians had that. They knew who they were. They knew who Christ was. They knew the plan of God. They were confused about a few things, but they basically knew where they were going. And Paul writes to this church, and it is an amazing, the first letter is an amazing uh, uh, letter, and the first chapter particularly amazing in that. Because what he will say to them is that they are living exactly as they should live. And that because of that, the gospel of Jesus Christ is resounding around all the areas where they live. So um, he says to them in uh, chapter 1, if you open up to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 10, or verse 9 and 10, he says, they the other people who have heard the gospel, they report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So my first question, well, it's not my first because I've already asked loads, but one of the questions is, is that who you are waiting for? Seriously. I mean, you must be a believer to have come here today, so I'm not doubting your faith. But I am asking you, is that really what you are waiting for, who you are waiting for? Are you waiting for Jesus? Every day when you wake up, does Jesus come into your mind? 
Are you thinking, I hope it's today? I know that's difficult. If you come from a loving family and if you have family members that love you, if you have a life that is at the moment, for today at least, pretty calm, it's not always the first thought in your mind that, you know, I want Jesus to come today. But the whole of the scripture is asking us to train our minds to become able to say, I hope you come today. And I want to be ready when you come. Um, And do you believe, second question, that he will rescue you from the wrath that is to come? Do you believe there is a wrath to come? And do you believe that he will rescue you from it? Um, Because it's believing those things that will cause you to exercise your faith. It is because you believe there is a wrath to come that you will find it imperative that you live in a way that shows people you believe that and there is a wrath to come and that you actually live confident that Jesus will rescue you from that wrath. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, um, uh, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And what we find throughout the Bible is that the people of God come to God, they, they seek him, and they seek him because they believe he will reward those who come to him. And what's the reward that people think they will get when they come to God? Or what's the reward you want? You want eternal life. You have eternal life. So now when you're seeking after God, because seeking God is not the first thing. I mean, you you do that at first, um, and you put your trust in him. You hear the gospel. But seeking after God after that, it's not something you do once and receive salvation. You don't receive the Holy Spirit, and then that's it. Whoop-de-doo, I'm fine. That's not what pleases God. What pleases God is to seek after him constantly, And the reason you would seek after God is what? You know him. And what do you particularly know about him? Well, how would you seek after after God? Why? Because he loves us. And Alex, is it possible to turn turn these off? Is it possible? Are they? Oh, okay. Yeah, why do you want a relationship with God? You can't see him, you can't touch him, you can't boff him, you know. Why? He's your father, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you seek after God? You only seek after God because you actually think he's worth it. That he's better than anything else. That he's worth every moment of your time and every ounce of your energy. You won't seek after God if you think he's just any old person. You'll only seek after God if you really think he's worth the trouble. And so you, we can look around, look at your own heart first, and, then, and think about how much you seek after God. Really search for him. Or how much are you okay about what you know already? Because we have a church full of people who are okay about what they know already. And that doesn't please God. It doesn't. This is what he says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith is a doing word. You know, when I learned English as a child, 
You have nouns and you have verbs, and verbs are doing words, and faith is a noun and a verb. So it's a thing, it's a noun. Um, so you have faith, but but the, what, what the Bible's talking about when you have faith is that faith is exercised. It's a verb. It's a doing word in your life. You are actively seeking after God. That, and that comes from your faith that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And the reward for the person who seeks after God is that they get more of God. They don't, it's not that you get eternal life. You've got eternal life. It's not that you get the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You put your trust in Jesus. That's the promise. You have eternal life. You will spend eternity with God. You have the Holy Spirit. He's there. But, you know, if you're not actively, actively, faithfully seeking after God, he's sitting in a corner. You've all heard that. You know, he's sitting in the living room or, in the, or under the stairs often in the cupboard. You know, this, this act of faith is what pleases God. And I know that you know it because you're here. Noah acted on his faith. He built the ark. We talked about that. He built an ark when they're in a place where there had been no rain. I, can you imagine? I mean, what sort of a madman must they have thought he was? He built an ark and there hadn't been rain. Rahab. Think about Rahab. Do you know Rahab? She's the prostitute or the harlot who was in uh, Jericho. And, and, but and everybody had heard about the Israelites and more. They'd heard about the God of the Israelites. And so she was ready, ready to do whatever it is that this God wanted because she said they'd heard about this God and how he could do whatever he wanted and how magnificent he was. And she had decided this God is the God I want. And so she was ready to put her life on the line for that God. Think about Abraham, who was sent out to a land he he didn't know. I want you to leave your family and leave your possessions and leave your inheritance and go to a place that I will show you. Why would he do that? Only because God was so huge to him. And so magnificent. And did he know everything about God? No, he didn't. You read Abraham's story and he's just like you and me. He's a mess a lot of the time. But he went after God because what he'd seen about God was enough to draw him on, draw him on. I'm telling you, we are in a place right now where we have to go after God with everything we have. Everything we have. Because that is what pleases God. And you know that if that is what pleases God, that is the way that God will make himself known in the world that we live. What's the definition of faith? What's the de- There's a question, sorry. What's the definition of faith? Where can you find the definition of faith? Say that again, Angela. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the conviction of things hoped for. No, I'm saying that wrong, aren't I? Hebrews, uh, faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of what you hope for. Faith is that. It's that I know that what I'm hoping for, I will get. 
and it is the conviction of things unseen, i.e., I know that Jesus came. I didn't see him. I wasn't there when he came. I know that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I know he's glorious and magnificent, and I know he's my saviour. But I haven't seen him. But my conviction is sure. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Okay, ask yourself the question, do you have that faith? Do you have it? And then think about the the places that we fellowship and the churches we go to and and what we do when we're in them and, and what we do when we take our faith out. Is the faith that we are taking out as a corporate body called the church, is it the assurance of things hoped for? Is it the assurance that Christ is coming, that he's coming back for his church? Is it the conviction of things unseen, the conviction that he is a mighty, glorious, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God, and that he knows every secret of every person's heart. There is nothing hidden from his eyes. He knows exactly what you think and when you think it. Is that the conviction you have? And if you really do have that, does it change the way you think? Really? That's the question, isn't it? Does it change what you, watch, what you watch on the TV? Does it change what you listen to in your car? Does it change the way you speak to your children or your husband or your wife or, or your friends? Does it change you that you have that conviction? Because that's the faith that we're talking about here. That's what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about. They weren't, when, they, when the faith was going forth from them, we're going to read it in a minute, it wasn't some namby-pamby maybe kind of a faith. It wasn't, oh, you know, well, I think he's coming back, and I've never met him, but I hear he's really good. (laughs) It was the reality of, this Christ has changed my life. He has given me life from death. I lived in darkness, and now I'm alive and in the light. I was blind, but now I see. We just sang the song. That's the Christ who came for you. And unfortunately, unless we continue to seek after God, we forget. We forget that he's that Christ. And we get so busy with so many other things that it becomes impossible to hold on to our conviction. And yet that's the thing that pleases God. The Bible, uh, Paul says that in... um, Uh, to the Thessalonians in his first letter, that they were living in hope and that they were living out of hope. Um, Let's read the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the... um, wrath to come when um, you read about these Thessalonian believers and realize that they're only a few years old in the Lord I mean it makes you feel ashamed honestly it makes me feel ashamed their work of faith their labor of love their steadfastness of hope was being talked about all over their known world in Achaia and Macedonia and and other places They were being talked about as people who knew and loved the Lord Jesus. Um, When he talks about hoping, um, the Bible doesn't doesn't have the same definition of hope that we have. We we say when, like, my grandchildren are all hoping to get this for Christmas at the moment. They are hoping for this, that, and the other thing. And the Bible doesn't mean when it says uh, hope, it doesn't mean wish. I wish I got that. I really, um, you know, I don't know if I will, but I I really want to get that. When the Bible talks about hope, almost 99.9% of the time it means I confidently expect that to come. It's not a wish. It's that they, it's something that you, you long for, but you know it's coming. You just don't know when. And that's what, um, this, uh, steadfastness of hope. That's what Paul's talking about here, their steadfastness of hope. Because they knew Christ was coming, they did a work of faith and a labor of love. Because they knew that that what Paul had taught them was the truth, because the word that had come to them came in power and in the Holy Spirit. So they knew that what he had told them was the truth. And because they knew it was the truth, they completely and utterly surrendered to it. And that word had transformed them. I mean, think about this. We just read in Acts 17, when Paul came to Thessalonica, there was uproar. There was, you know, riots in the streets, so much so that he had to leave suddenly. He was there three weeks. What did you know three weeks into your salvation? What did you know then? He taught them almost the whole doctrine of Scripture in three weeks. Can you imagine how much time they must have spent with him? They came to the Lord through his powerful gospel, and then they must have sat with him every day into the night, listening, 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 what he had to say. Okay, so what about you? You can sit with Paul every day into the night, and you can listen to what he has to say. You can hear the doctrine of God. You've got the whole of it in, in between two covers. You can read it day and night. Do you? What were they doing in Thessalonica? Look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. Paul has prayed for them, and he knows that they've been um, 
he, he prayed for them when he left and he knows that they are, uh, they are working and they have this labor of love and this uh, work of faith and they do have this steadfastness of hope and he's prayed for them. And in, ver- in chapter 3 he says, um, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Can you imagine what what was lacking in their faith? (laughs) I mean, you read about what they're doing and you think, really, was there something still lacking? But he knew that there was more to know, more to know, more to know. I study the Bible all the time, and many of you study too. I know you know the word, but there's more. There's always more. We're doing Luke's Gospel right now, and we're going to start again in January with part two, if you like. Not that Luke wrote part one and part two. but um, so and, and the thing is that has been amazing to me is I thought I knew Luke's Gospel. I thought I knew what it said. I did know what it said. But as you go through, there's so much more underneath it, so much more you can get out of it. Go ahead, Diana. Yeah. I had an understanding yeah. at that point in my life. Yeah. But there's so much. But the point is that it's living. Yes. It changes. Yes. So you can never, 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 but as you'll say, um, it's different because they're dead books. They're, they might be good, but they're dead. This is the living word, constantly changing. So he says they're loving and serving a true God. He's been praying for them in, um, in uh, chapter th- uh, 1, as I just read to you from verse 3 to verse 10. He says how they're living. And I think that the reason it's included in the canon of Scripture is that that's, this is how you and I are supposed to live. I mean, you, you want to know how to live? Put this, put this book on your, on your mirror, on your window, on your desk. This is how you're supposed to live. This is how we're supposed to live. Like this. Um, look again, three, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Can you see the connection? You received the word in much power and in the Holy Spirit. You began imitating me and imitating the Lord Jesus. And because you did, the word became an, the way they lived became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Okay, think about your fellowship. Think about you, where you fellowship, where you go to church. Is your fellowship, is your church an example? Are you an example to all the believers? Where do you go? I don't know. Where do you go to church? We'll pick Sirencester because it's a big town. You go to church in Sirencester, that's where your fellowship is. Is your fellowship becoming an example to all of the fellowships around you? Is your church like that? Is, faith, is the word of God sounding forth from your fellowship? I mean, what do you think a fellowship is? 
What do you think a fellowship is? What do you think a fellowship group is? What do you think church is? What, what is it about church that, that, that we tend to think it means that we all sit together in a nice heap and we sing nice songs and we pray for one another and, and, and then we have a nice meal. We have a fellowship meal together and, and it's all lovely and great. The reason for our fellowship is that we are to proclaim together. The reason for fellowship is you can't do it alone. You need people around you to help you do that. But it's not that you need the people around you to help you live like a Christian. You do. But that's not the end of it. It's that you take it out so that people see how great you are. And if necessary, you keep splitting your fellowship. You keep breaking in two like amoebas. And then you break in two again and break in two again. And do you know what will happen? What happens is that more and more and more people start to come into the scope of believers. They may not become believers straight away because we're all a work in progress and we fail miserably. But they will come into your remit, if you like, into your, your area of influence. And slowly they will start to see, I want to live like these people live. My goodness, I want the sort of family that they have. I want to live like they, they live. I want the Christ they have. I want the new life they have. Well, is your fellowship like that? Is it? Or do you just meet every Tuesday night or every Wednesday morning or whenever it is or every Sunday and you meet and you have a really great time together? You know, and that's not bad. I'm not saying that's bad. We need to do that. But the purpose of your life, the purpose of my life, is to be Christ here. You are, the church is the body of Christ. We're not just people who know Christ and who love him. We are people who are his actual body. That's those, we hear the songs, you know, or the people who um, write books about it. They, they're his hands and his feet. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We're his, we're his body. And the purpose of us being the hands and feet of Christ and the, is that we go out. Well, honestly, if, honestly, if your fellowship is just a wonderful, sweet get-together every week and everybody loves each other and it's, it's really great, I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm saying fill it with a purpose beyond that. Give it a purpose beyond that. Decide that, okay, I meet on a Tuesday night with my regular fellowship, but on Wednesday we're going to split in two and we're going to start inviting neighbours in and we're going to start inviting friends. We're going to start just getting like, you know, a spider's web. We're going to go out and out and out. That's what these were doing, the Thessalonians. That's exactly what they were doing. They had a work of faith, a labour of love and a steadfastness of hope. I want what they had. I want the kind of fellowship they had. And the thing is, we've just watched, uh, some of you came, we showed a video of the um, Iranian church. Uh, the, the Iranian church is exploding. The believers coming to faith in Christ in Iran is astounding, the numbers. And, you know, I've looked at those videos and I've tried to figure out, okay, what does that mean to me? How does, how does that translate into, you know, a typical English life? How, how can we do what they're doing? We're not being persecuted the way they're being persecuted. But one of the things that has hit me over the head, like a, you know, whatever, 
is just keeps banging on my head is they do evangelism totally different to us. They don't go out to convert people. They don't. They just don't go out to convert people. They live Christ. Every conversation is about Jesus. Every thought is about Jesus. Everywhere they go is about Jesus. So he naturally spills out of their conversation. He is naturally the focal point. Okay, so why is that not true of us? And is it because it's easy for us as Christians here? It's easy for us. And easy situations create very shallow faith. They talk about Jesus. Okay, one of the things I would say, if you don't do anything else after today, go home and write every single instance, every example of how Christ has moved in your life, how he has changed you, what he has done. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be he healed me from this or he worked a miracle there. You are the miracle of Christ. <laughs> you just being here is a massive miracle. Talk, write out your testimony about different things. You know, I used to, you know mine, I'm always bearing my soul. I, I drank for 10 years. I don't drink now. He changed me. He changed me in my car. I can't believe it, but I drive at the speed limit. That is an amazing transformation in my life. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it is. Because he's changed that in me. I don't tell lies anymore. I used to tell a lot of lies. Not for personal gain, but just to make things easy. You know, So we, there was no, no confrontation or didn't make people feel bad. I used to tell lies all the time. I bet, I bet there are loads of people in this room who tell lies often. Because that's our lifestyle. That's the way we think. And we dress it up because it's, it's a lie, but it's, I only did it to make it okay. We tell lies. I don't tell lies anymore. Don't ask me what you look like. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But so those things, I can talk to people about that. I can say, I know how hard it is to not lie. I know how hard it is not to watch things on the TV. I know how hard it is not to drink because I was there. I know how hard it is to trust God when your husband's not a believer because my husband's not a believer. I know how hard it is to have children who don't believe. I know how hard that is and I can relate to other people who have those same things. So write out yours. You've got much, probably much better things than me. Write them out. Practice saying them. Art, practice What they say in this video really struck me is every time they leave their house, because it's so dangerous, I think, they have to really pray, Lord, take me to the person you want me to speak to. Take me where you want me to go. Okay, well, pray that. Pray that. And thank God that it's not going to end in a bullet or a beating or a rape or whatever it is. It's going to be simply just a place for you to be able to share something. And then when they get there, they ask the Lord, what, should, what does this person need to hear from me? What do they need to know? What's going on in their life that I have something relevant to say? 
If you don't practice your own testimony, you won't know how to say it. We have to practice these things. And the only reason you would practice is what? To share. share. Say that again. So that you do it. And even before that, so that you're able to do it. Why would you first, you're hearing me say this, and maybe you're thinking, oh, for goodness sake, God, stop going on, Anne. You're always saying the same things. But why would you practice these things? Why would you think about it? Because you think that the Christ you know is worth the time it takes to practice your testimony, that he's worth the effort, and that the people around you are desperately lost without this Christ. Exactly. Of what he, yeah, it's, it's, it will build your own faith apart from anything else. So that's what uh, they're doing in, in Iran. I believe that's probably what they're doing in every persecuted Christian community. They're practicing their testimony. They're going over what Christ has done for them. Um, and, and, and Paul is saying, what, what Paul is saying to these Thessalonians is that not only were they doing this to spread the gospel, they, but they were doing it in light of the expectation that Christ would come any moment. When you read these letters, you know they thought Christ was coming back now. That was 2,000 what years ago and some. And now, you see, now where we are is, yeah, I know, but they've been saying Christ is coming for such a long time. Is he really? Is he really coming? I mean, is he going to come in my lifetime? Is he really? And the thing is, Paul's teaching them about the coming of Christ, even though he doesn't know exactly when Christ is coming back. But he undoubtedly taught everywhere he went, and in all of his letters you see it, he expected Christ at any moment. And because he expected him to come back at any moment, it changed the way he lived now. So what about you? You know, are you imitating Paul and the Lord Jesus? Are you, really? Or have you got caught up in all the things that you think are good and moral and ethical and making you an upstanding citizen? Are you caught up with Brexit? Caught up with the vote now? which, you know, the general election? Is it so important to you that it's consuming your thinking in your mind, taking your time? Are you reading the news? Are you getting all the tweets and the Twitter feeds and the, and the Facebook feeds? And, and are you going over all, all so that you really know what you're supposed to know about the different parties? Are you afraid? Are you afraid? Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen if... I don't even want to say a party. Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen if so-and-so gets in? What's going to happen? Are you being consumed with the events of our day? Or are you living in the middle of those events, knowing that it may not matter at all, Christ might come back tomorrow? Really? I mean, really? These people had um, sounded forth the gospel. They had turned from idols to serve a living and true God. Have you turned from idols? You know, I, don't, I dare say their idols were different to yours. But have you really, really turned from them? And are you teaching other people that that's a part of faith? That's part of loving and serving God? Is turning from everything else that is an idol? 
I mean, really, is your family an idol? Are your grandchildren or your children an idol? Is your job an idol? Is your expertise an idol? Is your gift an idol? Is your, the money in the bank an idol? Or lack of it? <laughs> Look at your life. Look at the things you think about. What you think about is what's important to you. Where you spend your time, what you give headspace to, is what's important to you. So you don't even need me to say these things, because as I say to you about headspace, you know what, is, what you're thinking about. Are you worried about your children's school, or the grandchildren's school, or their marital relationship, or, or your marital relationship, or are you worried about your health, or are you worried about... You know, what you're going to do if, if, if something cataclysmic happens? Do you find fear entering your thinking? Are you afraid a lot of the time? Are you anxious? Do you get panic attacks? Are things overwhelming to you a lot of the time? That's an idol. I'm not saying it's, you've deliberately erected it, but what I am saying is that it's taking your eye from God onto something else. And the Bible calls that idol worship. He says they turned from idols to serve a living and true God. But they still had questions. Um, and I should be already here at the questions, in fact, long through the questions. So we have to quickly speed on. Um, they were uncertain, the Thessalonians, about where they were in the timing plan that Paul had given them. If you look at um, chapter 4 of this letter... Um, he taught them that Christ was coming any time and they assumed that his second coming would, would happen in their lifetime. And so what they, uh, what they were concerned about was that if they were still experiencing tribulation and trial, had the day of the Lord already come? And if it had, why hadn't they been zoomed up Scotty, beamed up Scotty? You know, why hadn't the rapture happened? Because Paul definitely must have taught them that the rapture will happen before the day of the Lord, the tribulation. Because they're wondering why they're still there. And secondly, what will happen to those believers that they loved who'd already died when Christ came back for his church? So in chapter 4, this is what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, verse 13, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, we're not going to get too much into um, 
the rapture and all the details of it. It's um, quite clearly laid out there. But the most interesting thing for me about this is that Paul's not saying, I want you to wrangle, I definitely want you to let people know that the rapture's going to happen before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or whatever. He doesn't say any of that. What he says is, use this information to comfort one another. What does the word comfort mean? Care, yeah. Support, hey. To take away anxiety. So if you put all of that together, the word comfort in Scripture, it means to care and to console, but it has the understanding of to strengthen and to enable so that you're comforting someone is not you sitting with them saying, yes, it's so terrible, I don't understand how awful it is, let's cry together, you know. It's... It's, it's for, you to, for, for them to feel strengthened because you've come alongside them. Strengthened because you've told them some things that they didn't quite understand. Who is the comforter in Scripture? It's the Holy Spirit. So when you do that, what are you doing? You're spreading the word, but also what's the Holy Spirit doing through you? To comfort someone, exactly, the Holy Spirit is working through you. He is working through you within the body of Christ. How much do you think the body of Christ needs the Holy Spirit to work through you? Okay, so how much do you think it's necessary for you to understand and trust the plan of God so that you can pass it on, pass it on, pass it on? Look around you in the room. Rosie said something about it at the beginning. I didn't quite follow exactly, but she was talking about you know, the people behind you and the people in front of you. Look around you in the room. There are people here with anxiety issues you would not believe until they tell you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Diana. Yeah, and so what I would say to you is, knowing those verses and going through the experience you have gone through, you have a testimony so wonderful that there will be hundreds, if not thousands of people, particularly women, who need to know you, to know the Christ in you. And so I don't know how that will translate. I don't know what that will mean, but I do know that that's the truth. That's the truth. You've lost a husband, you've lost a child, you've lost, you know, I lost a child, as most of you know. And I, meet, I did meet straight away after, and also much later, when I was a Christian, much later, I met hundreds of people who had lost children. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I met who had lost a child. Why? Because I had first-hand understanding of what that's like. And I was able to share some things. Not that I had the answer. No one has the answer. But I, had the, I knew how that person was feeling, or at least I could almost understand how they were feeling. And that's you, Diana, now. You, you have the understanding of, of what that's like. So it's, it's almost like, okay, what are we going to do with all this information? What are we going to do with all this testimony? What are we going to do with all the ways that God has come in and strengthened us and comforted us? What are you going to do with it all? 
That's what people need. They don't need you standing on a street corner shouting out hell and damnation. I'm not saying that that's, there isn't a place for that. Don't get me wrong. If that's your calling, okay, fine. But what people need to know in this country is that, that there is a God who can actually transform those experiences. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Mike. Paul didn't stop with this, encourage one another with this rapture, because he wanted them to know that everything he's telling them is not just for information. You know, we have this kind of vague thing that that the Bible, you know, we're studying it, but but that it's it's you know, it, for a lot of people, it becomes head knowledge. They know it in their head, but it hasn't gone anywhere else. So it's just like understanding a curriculum almost. And what Paul's saying all in all of it is what he's just said, as I just read to you about chap from chapter four. I'm not telling you this for information about the rapture. I'm telling you this so that you can comfort one another with these words. And he's going to go on. Look at chapter 5. Um, he, he wants them to watch the signs of the times. That's what he's telling them to, about. He wants them to watch the signs of the time so that, um, that they would go where the Lord wanted them to go, would do what the Lord wanted them to do. And then in chapter 5, he says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need for anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Now look at what he's just said, and then see the sentence, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. What is the point of all this information? It is to encourage one another. Encourage one another. It is not so that we can argue about the details. It's so that we can, we can encourage one another that the truth of this scripture has an impact in our lives. 
I mean, honestly, ask a question of yourself. Is this impacting you that you are not of the darkness? You're of the light. That the day of the Lord won't overtake you like a thief. You won't. If you trust in the Lord and put your trust in him and continue to seek after him through his word, you won't be surprised about anything. You'll be able to look at the world you live in and know exactly where you are in that, in that plan, in that scheme. You'll know that God has a plan and that you figure in it and that he has a, a destination for you and he has a road mapped out. And there'll be nothing that makes you afraid because you'll understand finally and fully that your God is mightier than anything else, that his plan is perfect for your life. That yes, you might get knocked over like one of these What's those things that they stand up and they roll about? You know, they keep getting up. Weevil. 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 A weevil, not a weevil. (laughs) No, a weevil. Yeah. So you might be like one of those. Sometimes I feel a bit like one of those. Do you know what I mean? You know, the the ball gets thrown at them. My my kids used to have that game. used to throw the ball, roll the ball along, and they'd knock over. But they always bounce back up again. They always bounce back up again. That's who you are. You're someone who will always bounce upright. Why? Because Christ lives in you. He's not going to lay down on the ground. He lives in you. He has a plan and a purpose. And until your day comes, you are not going anywhere. Um, I think I probably should stop, shouldn't I? No, I won't. Just five more minutes. Um, sorry. Um, so... Uh, it seems that uh, they're a bit concerned about the, where they are in this, uh, in this time frame of God. And that's understandable because a lot of them are uh, Gentiles, so they don't have the knowledge of the Old Testament. Um, and so he ends up writing a second letter. Um, I'm going to stop because I can't find my way through my notes now to make it go on. And anyway, you need a cup of coffee, and so do I. So... Um, uh, yeah, you can only have about 15 minutes, though. It's supposed to be half an hour, but we've got no time. So <laughs> 15 minutes, cup of coffee, biscuit, and uh, see you back here. Thank you. Thank you.